So sometimes the scriptures force you to talk about difficult things like wrath. I don't like talking about wrath. Wrath is a tough thing to wrap my mind around. I mean, I can talk all day long about grace or mercy. Never mind that you can't actually understand grace and mercy without understanding wrath. But I'm going to try to find a way because that's how hard it is for me to talk about wrath. But the scriptures don't let you shy away from wrath. Or any part of the gospel, really. See, as the Bible paints a picture of Jesus, it slowly and carefully articulates the gospel, the whole thing, every single detail. So that if you read it all, you have to deal with everything, even the tough stuff. So when we last spoke about Samuel, we spent a lot of time thinking about the upside-down vision of the kingdom. Remember the words of Jesus? The last will be first, and the first will be last. Or Brett always reminds me that I'm backwards here. So the first will be last, and the last will be first. That's what the kingdom of God is like. The story of Samuel unfolds, and we see two types of people. We see the weak and the young, and the powerless, and the broken. And all the hope of the story of Samuel is laid up in God working through these people. But we also see the mighty, and the handsome, and the socially and politically powerful. And even though you might expect these guys and gals to be key players in God's redemption story. Actually, if they play any role in the, in the story of Samuel, it's usually the role of the villain. But none of that should surprise you because you've read Hannah's song. So just by way of reminder, everybody open up your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 2 and read with me from verse 6. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy up from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillar of the earth, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. For not by might shall a man prevail. That's the kingdom. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And these words, the song of a barren woman who cried out to God and found rescue, these words teach us how to think about the kingdom of God. 
And this song is the roadmap that teaches us how to understand the story of Samuel, which is in itself the story of the kingdom. Now, if we wanted to, we could spend all our time talking about every other line in this song. We could talk about how God guards the feet of his faithful without necessarily mentioning that the wicked will be cut off in darkness. We could talk about the Lord giving strength to his king without mentioning that the adversaries of the Lord will be broken to pieces. And believe me, if I could, I would. But the story of Samuel doesn't let us do that. Because God is always doing two things at once. He's raising up a faithful priest, and he's also rising against the corrupt priesthood. He sends his prophet to anoint a shepherd boy, and he's also sending armies against the corrupt king of Israel. Grace and wrath, mercy and judgment. The kingdom of God isn't just about the lifting up of the weak. It's about the destruction of the wicked. God is always doing two things. He is always rescuing and raising up his people. And he's always storing up and executing judgment on the wicked. And when Christ returns, we're going to see the culmination of both of these things. On the last day, the first day of the new creation, God will finish his work to rescue his people and he will finish his work of judgment to end the work of the wicked. Good news for the weak and the helpless and the broken and the humble. But bad news for the proud and the mighty. That's the gospel. God is always doing two things, and that's what this next story is about. So I want you to read with me from Samuel 2.11, just where we left off. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come, and while the meat was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand, he would thrust it in the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to them, Let him burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. And for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year as she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy, Samuel, 
grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing that all his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, the boy, Samuel, continued to grow both in stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when you were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves in the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord says, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be a sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or for a loaf of bread and say, Please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Okay, so the first thing I want to point out is that this passage is pointed in two directions. On the one hand, this passage is about Hophni and Phinehas. And as this passage unfolds, you begin to see just how corrupt they've become. But this passage never lets you focus your attention exclusively on the corrupt priesthood. Because it's always interrupting that story to remind you about young Samuel. Never are the priests, not once are the priests mentioned without Samuel in the background. Take a look. The boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priests. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. 
and a bit further. Thus the sins of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with linen ephod. And a bit further, the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And a bit further, but they would not listen to the voice of their father for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And then at the very end of a dark prophecy, and this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, both of them shall die on the same day and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who, who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind and I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. So this is a technique that authors now call braiding. Authors will take two stories that at face value seem unrelated and they'll weave them together. Because in reality, they are absolutely fundamentally related. Braiding is used when two or three stories are all really working together in concert to tell the same story. And usually when authors braid two stories together like this, somewhere in the middle you can find a statement or two that reflects the heart of the story, the sum of all parts. Almost like a thesis statement. Right there, gravitating in the center of two or three stories. And if you can find that thesis statement, and if you stop for a moment to wrap your mind around it, that's all you really need to get it. That's all you need to understand what the whole deal is about. And this story, I think, is no exception. Glance back at the passage and take note of the building action. At first, there is a brief mention of past abuses of the sacrificial system. It had been customary, not lawful, customary, to grab a fork and rip off chunks of the sacrifice for the priests. Now, you need to know that the law had made provision for priests to eat of the sacrifices, but this was not that provision. This was not lawful. It was customary. So right off the bat, we learn that for a while now, priests have been unlawfully Stealing from the sacrifices. Now we also learn that everyone was accustomed to this abuse, so it didn't really strike the people of Israel as abnormal. Now that in itself is an indictment against the priesthood. But it gets worse. As the passage builds, we also find that Hophni and Phinehas have been sending their servants to force the people of God to take the choicest cuts of meat from their sacrifices. These are God's sacrifices. And these men are literally stripping the sacrifices to God. Think about that for a moment. Sin... From the outset, sin cracks the world and it shatters man's relationship with God. 
God, who is literally our only hope. And because God is good and kind, he set about to heal and to rescue. But before he can restore his people, God has to deal with sin. Sin makes men God's enemies. If sin is in the picture, the nearness of God is the last thing you want. So if God was to draw near to his people and to heal them and to rescue them, he had to provide a way to wipe away sin. And that way is sacrifice. Through sacrifice, the people of God are reconciled to God. So these men are literally defacing the sacrifice. They are literally hindering God's means of reconciliation with His people. So so not only are these priests corrupt, but Hophni and Phinehas are especially corrupt, so corrupt that they cripple the most intimate and central features of the worship of God. And it even goes further. Rumors spread to Eli that Hophni and Phinehas had been sleeping with the women whose role was to serve at the entrance of the tabernacle. It's almost unbelievable. Every action, every single action of the priesthood is actually undermining the worship of God. These men were commissioned to facilitate the worship of God, yet every action is actually undermining the faith of the people, actually compromising the worship of the people. And that has gravity, unparalleled gravity. So Eli turns to his sons and he says these words, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is not good Report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? If you sin against God, who can intercede for you? That, friends, is a good question. What happens when you make an enemy of your only hope? Death. That's what happens. Death of the highest and most spectacular order. That's what's coming. Because you can't do that. Look, if you have no hope outside the mercy of God, you don't shake your fist at the heavens. You don't spit on the sacrifice that's saving you. You don't do it. Because one thing is clear. God can either be your greatest hope or He can be your most dreadful enemy. And you don't mess with His grace. You don't do it. His mercy is not to be trifled with. So God sends Eli a message And right there at the heart of that message is this one sentence. Far be it from me, for those who honor me, 
I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Now those, those are powerful and terrifying words. Do you know why? Because God is referring to a promise that He made. Take a look. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of the people of Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Look, this is the house of Aaron. Yes, that Aaron, who stood bold before Pharaoh and said, let my people go. This is the Aaron who struck the dust and cast gnats throughout the land of Egypt. This is that Aaron to whom God made this promise. I promise, Aaron, your house will serve me forever. But far be it from God. Far be it from God to stand by as His grace and mercy is desecrated. Far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. There it is. There it is, right there at the heart of the story. That's our thesis statement. That's the key to understanding this carefully braided passage. That's why Samuel's story keeps interrupting the story of Hophni and Phinehas. That's why we keep looking back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, from faithless to faithful. Those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. I think two things are made very clear in this passage. First, God is ever at work to raise up his faithful servant. I want you to stop for a moment and think about what this passage would feel like if Samuel were not a part of it. The tabernacle, which is literally the centerpiece in the worship of God, is a laughing stock. This rumor is spreading abroad. Everybody who comes to the tabernacle knows what they're facing. Theft, desecration, adultery have become customary within the Holy of Holies. Don't let your daughters go there. You know what the priests are like. the very structure of the worship of God is infected with sin. And the priests whose purpose is to facilitate the worship of God are inhibiting the worship of God. They are mocking and they are desecrating and they are abusing their only hope of reconciliation. Without Samuel, this story is hopeless. Yet you can't read even a paragraph about the corruption of the priesthood without a reminder that Samuel is there. Hey, look, reader. Samuel is there, just a boy, serving the Lord. Don't be discouraged, reader. The Lord is raising up a faithful priest. 
Don't despair, reader. Samuel is growing up in stature and in favor with God and men. And don't be fooled, reader. God won't stand by and watch his name defamed. Samuel is here. A faithful priest who will serve the king. This chapter is, in a way, about Hophni and Phinehas. But in a way, it's not. Here's what I mean. There's a reason this story is called Samuel. Right now, at this moment in the story, the spectacle before us is the gravity of corruption, right? The weight of the corruption of these priests. And that's unshakable, really. It's hard even to imagine how awful these two men have become. They are threatening the faithful to demand the choices of sacrifices. They are seducing young women who serve at the entrance of the tabernacle. These men are supposed to be the instruments of God, but what they're doing is defacing the worship of God and mocking the name of God. Hophni and Phinehas are the blackest corner of the sin of Israel, and you can find them right in the heart of the tabernacle, but this is just the first chapter in a story about the rescue of God's people. Here's the thing about wrath and sin and judgment and death. These things are hard. But they're also just the dark first chapter of a beautiful redemption story. You can't read, if you've tried, you can't read the Bible without feeling uncomfortable, right? Because the Bible isn't a toddler's book about rainbows and fairies, butterflies. This book, this book is an epic, full of dark nights and dangerous battles and terrifying beasts. But all of those things are here to teach us about the might and the strength and the hope and the valor of a great and powerful hero. A hero who will die for his people and who will inaugurate his kingdom forever. This story is in a way about the corrupt priesthood. But what it's really about, what they're all about really, is the rescue of the people of God. Because at every moment, Samuel is there. The second thing That was the first thing that I think this passage makes clear. The second thing that I think is very clear in this passage is that God won't stand by and watch the desecration of His worship. He won't stand by and watch His name defamed. He won't do it. It is not within Him. It is not possible. He cannot stand by and watch as men mock, as men pretend to serve Him, but actually mock Him. He does not, He cannot, He will not do it. Listen to his words, because this moment is powerful and it is shocking. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Did you catch that? I promised I'd do this. I promised that the house of your father would serve me forever. But I cannot. Far be it from me. My nature won't allow me to honor those who despise me. It's not in the cards. 
The, the house of Aaron had everything going for it. The blessing of God, the powerful. The ministry of God, the magnificent. A seat of honor before the king of kings. No family on God's green earth was in a better position to remain in God's favor forever. Yet the promise of God was compromised. And from now on, only wrath. What changed? What sets apart the sins of Hophni and Phinehas such that all the promises of God towards the house of Aaron would be null and void? I mean, were these the only adulterers in the nation of Israel? No. Were these the only ones that didn't understand the gravity of their tabernacle? Clearly not. So why? Why set aside the promise made to Aaron in this case? I want you to look back really quickly at the words of Eli. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? If you sin against man, God may mediate. But if you sin against the Lord, who can intercede? Who indeed? No one. No one can intercede for you if you've sinned against God. Now, what this passage is not saying is that some sins are acts of rebellion against God and other sins are not. The law, I think, is remarkable because God reacts personally to every sin, to every offense. Your sin against your brother, make amends. But then be grateful on the Day of Atonement. Because all sins needed atonement. Every single one. Because any act of law-breaking was a personal affront to God. Any act of rebellion against God. And that is clearly articulated in the law. So what does Eli mean? No one can intercede for you if you've sinned against God. Let me answer that question with another question. How were they sinning against God? They were desecrating the sacrifice. They were desecrating the atonement. They were interrupting and belittling cries for forgiveness. They were interrupting and belittling the blood atonement of the people of God. Sure, they chose to sin, just like everybody else chose to sin. But how they chose to sin was by desecrating God's means of atonement for His people. See, sin requires blood. The blood of an innocent. That's the price to be reconciled to God. Blood is a covering. When an innocent dies in your stead, you stand before God wearing... That innocence. That's the rule. 
that innocent blood is a covering for you. And you, sinner, you get under that covering. And you stay under that covering because there is no hope for you without that covering. Are you beginning to see what they've done? Their lives depended on that blood covering. Now look, in, in this instance, the, the sacrifice of the innocent creatures was just a shadow. A shadow. A symbol. Reflecting the innocent Son of God who would one day be sacri- slaughtered in order to atone for God's people forever. But the blood of the sacrifice offered in the tabernacle meant something. It was a symbol of their need for covering. And those sacrifices were God's means to reconcile the people to Himself. They were God's means to protect the people from His wrath against sin. So when Hophni and Phinehas chose to desecrate their covering, they chose death. Look back. I mean, look back at the the thing for a second. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within I don't look at Satan and say, I'm not guilty. Upward I look, and I see him there, who made an end of all my sin, because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and to pardon me. If I reject... The sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is not counted free. There was a really powerful moment on February 26, 2011. You may remember a guy named Rob Bell. He was a famous pastor in the Northeast. And he wrote a bunch of really popular and really accessible books on the gospel and on church life. I used to listen to him religiously. In February of 2011, Rob Bell published a video promoting his new book, Love Wins. And in his video, on YouTube, broadcast to the whole world, he says these things. Will only a few select people make it into heaven while billions and billions of people burn forever in hell? The real question is, what is God like? Because millions and millions of people were taught that the primary message, the center of the gospel of Jesus, is that God is going to send you to hell unless you believe in Jesus. And so what gets subtly sort of caught and taught is that Jesus rescues you from God. But what kind of God is that? That we would need to be rescued from this God. How could that God ever be good? How could that God ever be trusted? And how can that God, how can that news ever be good news? 
This is why lots of people want nothing to do with the Christian faith. So this stirred up a lot of conversation among believers everywhere. But of all the comments and the questions and the academic conversations and the tirades online, one comment has stuck in my mind forever since. John Piper tweeted three words. Farewell, Rob Bell. Now, those three words blew up the evangelical conversation because people stopped talking so much about the theological implications of Rob Bell's words and they started asking the question. Did we, did we just watch in real time Rob Bell rejects the atoning work of Jesus? John Piper was interviewed about that tweet. And this is what he said. When I watched the video of Rob Bell that was put up on Justin Taylor's website, which was, I think, a link to his book on hell, my issue there was not primarily his view of hell. It was his cynicism concerning the cross of Jesus Christ as a place where the Father atoned for the sins of His children and dealt with His own wrath by punishing me in His Son. Rob Bell does not admire that. He doesn't view the cross that way as a penal substitution. I consider that the essence of the cross and of my salvation and the heart of God for me. At first, it was just a one in a series of conversations about the last thing some famous pastor might have said. But then all of a sudden, all of us realize, oh no, there's no hope outside of the covering. It's hard. Because there are very few areas in Scripture as clear as this. If you reject the covering work of God in Christ, there is no hope for you. Let me state it another way. There is so much hope for you in Christ. So much. All the hope you need in Christ right now. But that's it. (laughs) That's the only hope you have. If you reject the covering work of God in Christ, there is no hope for you. Only wrath. Perhaps mercy for a season. After all, you're still breathing. But that's all that's left for you is trembling and fear of judgment. Hophni and Phinehas rejected and desecrated the work of redemption. They spat upon the covering work that was God's means of reconciliation. All that remained for them was death and judgment because if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him?
I have at times despaired over the state of Christianity in America and among the nations. I have watched videos of false teachers who have desecrated the gospel and who have rejected the work of Christ and who have lied to and deceived millions upon millions of men and women. And that type of of deception is tragic. I hate it. But this passage teaches me two things. First, the vengeance of God is coming and He will wipe away all who would deceive His people and all who would mock His redemptive work. Because God cannot stand by while His name is defamed. But that's not all. This passage teaches me to hope that God is always raising up the faithful. He is ever at work giving new life to a royal priesthood who will serve before His anointed forever. So the next time you're tempted to despair over the size of Joel Osteen's church, or when you see tens of thousands flock right downtown at the convention center to Kenneth Copeland's annual event, when you hear that the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is spreading like wildfire in the neediest parts of the world, don't despair. These wicked men who would deceive and take advantage of millions, they have no hope. They will not perpetuate. There is only fearful expectation of judgment. But hope. Because God is ever raising up the faithful. For every report of a Hophni and Phinehas, you can be sure that a young Samuel is serving before the anointed king. Praise God. So, one last thing. I think this is a little funny. No joke, just three weeks ago, I was sitting in a room with Dale and Brett, and I looked over to Brett, and I said, so it's missions month, and I've got this great passage that's really powerful, and it's pretty heavy, but man, that has nothing to do with missions. <laughs> okay. I have always struggled with hyperbole. I've always struggled with exaggeration. And man, sometimes it just comes back to bite you. Let me tell you something. I was wrong. Way wrong. Because this passage has everything to do with missions. Everything. You might even say that this passage is, in a way, about the missions movement. You remember what God is doing here? The same thing that He's always doing? Shutting down the wicked and raising up a faithful people? Those two actions are fundamentally related. God is making way for a faithful priesthood by setting aside those who would mock His atoning work. Always setting aside, always removing the wicked, the faithless, and always stirring in the hearts of a faithful people. I mean, right here in this passage, God is tearing down the corrupt priests who would desecrate His work of reconciliation, and He's making way for a faithful priest who will serve before the anointed King of Israel. That is how God works. He is preparing a way for a faithful priesthood.
I want to I show you something that I think is amazing. Turn with me to Acts 13.42. I'm already there, so... <laughs> I'm just kidding. So while you're turning, Paul has just arrived in Antioch of Pisidian. And he beelines straight for the synagogue, which was, was, it was his pattern. And on this Sabbath day, Paul preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, the covering of blood that is their rescue and hope to Jews in Antioch. These people who for all intent and purpose appear to be a people ready, made for the worship of God. They have the law, they have the prophets, they've heard of the Messiah, they pray, they fast, they keep themselves unstained from the wickedness of the Roman world. And you'd suppose that they were primed and ready to run to Christ as soon as they heard of his covering work. So Paul preaches the gospel to these Jews. And at first, they're thrilled. Let's start reading in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews, many Jews, and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. What was spoken by Paul? What did he only and always speak? Cross. Christ crucified. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you. Since... You thrust it aside and judge yourself unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. It's the origin story of the missions movement in a way. It's not the only one. The New Testament is the origin story of the mission movement. But men who ought to have run to God's means of reconciliation turned against it in jealousy. Those who ought to have been priests of God were mocking the redemptive work of God, just like Hophni and Phinehas. They rejected the covering just like Hophni and Phinehas. They chose death. Yet God was raising up a faithful people. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. God is always doing two things. And one of those things is readying a people for himself from among the nations. 
Look, even in the midst of Hophni and Phinehas' darkest rebellion, even while they mocked the redemptive work of God, here is God at work. He was at work readying Samuel for service. He was at work preparing Samuel to serve at the feet of the king. And even still, God is at work. Though the many reject the covering, God is at work preparing a people to serve as a kingdom of priests. God is at work, though the world seems hell-bent on stifling the gospel. He's readying a people for service before the king of kings. Now, cling to the covering. Cling to it. Never let go. And here we are about to celebrate the covering. So, Brett, 